Well, as we begin this morning, I want to ask you, what are the most important seasons for you as a Christian? I went to Woolworths this week with Pastor John. I love going to Woolworths because it reminds me of my childhood in Canada. Woolworths was bought out in Canada by Walmart, so it no longer exists there. But I look forward to the nostalgia of going in. When I went into the souvenir section as I was trying to get some things for my kids, I was a little bit surprised to see that already there were Christmas trees uh, up for sale. And I was thinking, it's October. What's going on here? Now in Canada, we will have them soon. Uh, but before that, we have uh, a secular celebration, for most part, called Halloween. Now I know that that's also something that sometimes is uh, celebrated here. But it was previously known, before it was called Halloween, it was known as All Hallows' Eve. That's what Halloween is a sh short form of. It was just before All Saints' Day. Now, as Protestants, we don't celebrate the saints like the Roman Catholics do. So we don't celebrate All Saints' Day. But October 31st is an important day to Christians. Because 505 years ago tomorrow, on All Saints' Day in 1517, there occurred one of the most important events on the, in the history of the world on All Hallows' Eve. Today we call it Reformation Day. 505 days ago, uh, 505 years ago, tomorrow. Martin Luther, the Franciscan monk, went and nailed a series of challenges called theses, 95 theses, to the door of the church in Wittenberg. He didn't know it at the time, but as we've been looking this weekend in our Reformation conference, he started what became known as the Protestant Reformation. And everyone who identifies as Protestants began with that act. <clears throat> in doing so, he began a revolution that drove people back to the sources, back to the Bible, and basically upended the Roman Catholic Church with all of its traditions and other things that had crept in over the years. This is the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. It was a protest against the Roman Catholic distortion of the biblical gospel message. And as a church, as we've said over the course of this weekend, we are seeking to follow in the steps of these reformers and to go back to the scriptures to know what God would teach us about salvation and about life. We are a Christian church. We are a Protestant church. We are a Reformed and Baptist church. Now, the reformers' teaching was summarized in five solas that they emphasized. Sola is just the Latin term for alone. They determined that the Roman Catholic Church had lost track of biblical teachings and had undermined the basic principles of God's word in salvation. So they sought to recapture this teaching of the Bible, and they did this in, this, in these five solos. And the five solos are sola scriptura. They recognized that the foundation of everything was the Bible, the scriptures alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus, by Jesus Christ alone. And soli dea gloria, for God's glory alone. Now the solos are all interrelated to each other with the emphasis on the work of Jesus Christ as the means by which we come into relationship with God. This was in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church that argued that we are saved by grace, yes, but also by our religious works. To summarize the solas in a sentence, the Bible authoritatively teaches us that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, not man. Now today, as we recall this event in our worship services, we're going to look at two passages in the Bible which outline two of these five solas that are still important today. This morning, we're going to look at sola fide, that as Christians, we are justified by faith alone, from this passage in Luke that we read about the Pharisee and the publican. This evening, we're going to look at sola scriptura, the authoritative word of God alone. And one of the joys of understanding the Reformation is to delight in these truths. And we've been celebrating that all weekend as we've been looking at the history. 
But there's also a very subtle danger that in studying the history of these things, we can be overly, um, overly focused on our identity as a historical, confessional, reformed Baptist church. That makes us feel pretty good about ourselves, right? We're in the line of history. We're the ones that are carrying on the great tradition of the reformers. And the very thing that led the Roman Catholic Church away from the gospel into arrogance can happen when we become so enamored with the history and the Reformation and its truths that we lose what it was all about in the first place. We lose the gospel. And this is why, after two nights of celebrating our Reformed heritage and identity, this morning we're going to meditate on the basic doctrine that underpins all of our beliefs and properly humbles us before God. We're going to look at sola fide, justification by faith alone. First of all, a little definition. What is justification? The Catechism puts it this way. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepted us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, this morning, you might be thinking, well, I'm not even sure that I really care about my righteousness. And I would say to you, if you think that, everyone is concerned about their righteousness. You may not necessarily consider it. They might not justify themselves in these terms. But if you talk to the average person on the street and you ask them, are you going to heaven? Well, according to the latest poll numbers in Barbados, 76% of Bajans identify themselves as Christians, even if many of them haven't darkened the door of a church in many years. But maybe if you ask the average person in Barbados or in Canada the further question why they thought they were going to heaven, the response that we often hear when you ask a person, why are you going to heaven, is, well, say something like this. Well, I'm not exactly perfect, but I think I've been mostly a good person. I was speaking to a young man not too long ago who told me that he may have made many mistakes in his life, but that he was an honorable guy, and he felt that that should count for something with God. And I had to say to him, that's what self-righteousness is. The fact is, a lot of people don't realize or don't acknowledge that they are indeed sinners that without Christ are hell-bound. They're either ignorant of the fact that the Bible says that according to our sinful nature, there is no one righteous, no, not one, or they just don't believe it. They don't think that they need the mercy of God. By definition... Even if they won't identify themselves, they are self-righteous when they don't think that they need God. They think, I'm good enough. Jesus, in our passage before us this morning, tells this parable to a similar audience of people. In fact, it was an audience that verse 9 tells us trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I hope that is not CRBC Barbados this morning. But there is sort of this arrogance and self-righteousness that's sort of baked into our thinking and our, our existence, isn't there? We are constantly thinking about things, even as we go along. It was interesting this week, I was walking towards Oystens, and I haven't done a lot of walking in Barbados because it scares the life out of me. But as a Canadian, I've been taught since I was a little god-high boy that you walk facing traffic. In other words, the traffic is coming towards you. So you walk on the side of the street and the traffic is coming before you. Well, as I'm doing that, I have somebody pass me on the other side and yell out of their windows, wrong side of the road! And I'm confused. Because it is a different side of the road to Canada. I'm like, am I doing this wrong? It doesn't. And, and then I see Bajans walking on both sides of the street. I'm, I'm totally confused. So I'm being judged for walking on the wrong side of the street. I'm thinking, these guys are crazy. 
How can they walk and, and a car's going to knock them over? They, at least I want to look the guy in the eyes before he hits me. <laughs> we have this sort of sense where we start condemning each other. And obviously that person driving by me was very upset that I was walking on the wrong side of the road. And I was very upset that he was doing that. And I was judging him and he was judging me. This is how we function. Right? We function in terms of self-righteousness, self-justification. And Jesus is pointing out that fact in our passage this morning. He's trying to convey the fact that everyone needs the mercy of God. That none of us are righteous in ourselves. And it's especially those who don't think that they need righteousness that actually need it. In fact, his point is that the so-called good guys in this particular um, parable, and I want to challenge you, who do you think is the good person here? That's actually revealing. The good guys are the ones who are most in danger of hell. Dill Ralph Davis, when he writes this in his commentary, he, he entitles this, this chapter, the, fair, the, the Presbyterian and the Publican, because he's Presbyterian. But we could easily say Reformed Baptist and the Publican, couldn't we? Because we are and tend towards these kinds of self-righteousness. The point in our passage this morning is that Jesus calls us to repent of our sins and believe only in him. He doesn't just mean that we repent of last lusting after a man or a woman that isn't our spouse. He doesn't just mean that we need to stop cheating on our income tax. He doesn't mean that we stop just stop lying to others. No, Jesus here is addressing a deeper and more blinding sin problem. Most people are aware that you shouldn't commit adultery, that you shouldn't murder or hate or cheat. And of course, Jesus wants us to repent of those sins. But he also wants us to repent of something else, something that a lot of us don't think about. He wants us to repent of our own self-righteousness. He wants us to turn away from that which thinks that we are good with God, even if we don't live a life in worship and submission, which is, of course, contrary to his word. The Bible tells us very directly in Romans 1 that all men everywhere live under the wrath of God because God created us as created beings and we worship created things rather than him as the creator. And sometimes we worship things uh, overtly, like we do see idolatry. I come from Toronto, a very multicultural city, and we, have, we literally have idols in our city. And you'll see them. There'll be Buddhist temples with statues of Buddha, or Hindu temples where there are statues of Vishnu, and, and those kinds of things. But we also worship idols that are not seen. The Bible calls these idols of the heart. And we can take good things, created things that God has given to us, relationships, right? Love. And we can elevate love to the, to the position of God. And we put our whole life into pursuing a relationship with a man or a woman. Or we make work, our job, our career, that which we focus on. All of those things. And those things are good, right? A relationship, a marriage. It's a wonderful thing. But it is a perishing thing. It is a created thing. Work is a good thing. The Bible says it's good for us to work. But we can't let good things become ultimate things because there is only one ultimate, and that is our relationship with God. This parable presented by Jesus to address this big ancient and modern problem of self-righteousness is very helpful because it clarifies what we understand about how we are made right or how we are justified before God. And it's not a new issue, like many of the problems in the world. It's been there since the very beginning in the fall into sin. And the situation of everyone in the world right now, and everyone in this room right now before us, is represented by these two characters in the story that Jesus gives us. We're going to look at this parable this morning under two simple headings. The first is, there are two sinners that went to the temple. And there is, secondly, one righteousness. Now, this story is called, often called, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. 
And it compares two men, two prayers, and two destinies. Now, when we hear that Jesus talk about here, about two men going up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, we immediately know, or at least we think we know, who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. The problem really is, though, that we have the wrong good guy and the wrong bad guy. And I say that no matter who you think the good guy and the bad guy is. We think sometimes that the Pharisee is the bad guy, right? We've grown up with that understanding. If you grew up in, 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 in Sunday school, you've heard that, right? You've, you've sung those little songs, those little ditties. I don't want to be a Pharisee because they ain't fair, you see, right? I just want to be a sheep, ba-ba, right? Like that's, that's sort of our, our, uh, our mentality, right? The Pharisee is the bad guy and the tax collector is the good guy, right? That's how we've grown up and we've understood that. Now, Jesus' listeners would not have had that impression. And that was partly what, that was part of what he was trying to convey. Pharisees were highly viewed as the most righteous layman that ever existed. The tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Essentially, these men were overlooked, were looked down upon because they not only collaborated with the enemy, that is the occupier, the Romans, they were also greedy cheats for the most part. They were the last people you would necessarily expect to see in a temple. It's like if a drug dealer or a pimp showed up to church. People who make money off of other people's misery. You would let them into the church because, well, you have to let them in. They sure make you uncomfortable with their presence. Now, when we listen to this Pharisee pray, although we may be biased against him, we need to be fair. In some ways, we should even respect him. Now, bear with me as I say that. If we take him at his word, he's a man with few obvious sins and many commendable worship virtues. We look at what he says as he comes here before God. He says, um, I, uh, I, he, he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And that's his, that's his prayer. And in some ways, we can sort of identify, okay, what's positive about what he says there? Okay, we can immediately pick it apart, but what's positive? Well, he's thankful to God. This is important. He wasn't a Pelagian. He wasn't like one of the early church heretics known as Pelagius. He didn't believe that he was saved entirely by his works. He was semi-Pelagian. He was thankful to God, plus he did all those good works. He's a very moral guy. He's kind of Roman Catholic in that sense. Faith and works. He didn't steal. The tax collectors did. He was not unjust. Dishonest scales. He didn't cheat on his wife. Or apparently he didn't. We don't know. He kept the law of God. At least openly. He even went uh, above and beyond the average good guy to fast twice a week. There was no biblical requirement to fast except once a year on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. So this guy was a hundred times better. He did it twice a week, 52 weeks a year. And he tied everything. Now that's interesting. That was not something that was required by the law. The biblical tithe only applied to certain produce, but not to all forms of income at that point. So doing this, he's actually, you know, by societal standards, there he would have been a pretty good guy. This Pharisee is given as a picture here by Jesus Christ as the highest example of someone following the law according to his own powers. It doesn't appear that he's broken any of the Ten Commandments. From the outside, he looks like the perfect church member in some ways. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. Isn't that what we're called to do? We're not called to worship God out of, at a minimal level. We're called to maximize. This guy isn't worshiping minimally. He's doing more. He's there at every church meeting. He sets up. He does announcements. He'd probably be a candidate for deacon. But what's wrong with this guy? 
Well, as the text tells us, he is unrighteous in the sight of God. He goes home, as verse 14 tells us, unjustified. He's done his religious duty, but it's not enough. He's even gone beyond his basic religious duty, but it's not enough. And then the kicker is that Jesus tells us that the pimp, the drug lord, the tax collector goes home justified by his prayer. What's going on here? Well, obviously we can see the flaws as well. As much as we can try and pick out what's good, we can see the flaws in there. Oh, like the indications, right? You have an indicator in your car that tells you when your fuel tank is at a particular level. Well, the indications here are very clear in his attitude. He despises the others that are there. He says, not like this tax collector, right? We see the attitude of self-righteousness is very, very much a part of it. And it's odious to us. And we think, oh, this guy's ugly, right? This is not someone who's is really, not, I, I'm not like him, right? I'm not like him in that. Are you not? Think about it. It's telling, isn't it? You see, what's going on here is that Jesus is telling us a parable about two bad gods, not just one. The question isn't one of which guy is worse, the publican or the tax collector or the Pharisee. Because before God, they're both condemned by their sin. Because God doesn't just look at the outside. He doesn't look at, at what the religious works that are being performed. He looks at the inside. Right? And we, we see this in Jesus' teaching. Right? When he teaches about lust. You may be able to physically prevent yourself from sleeping with another man's wife. Or breaking uh, or fornicating or, or with a, someone else's husband. You may be able to physically present you, prevent yourself from doing that, but Jesus says that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed that sin already in your heart, and you stand condemned before him. This is what he says in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is the thing that's really powerful when we start thinking about sin. And we externalize it and we say, well, those guys are sinners. Right? And, and whatever, whoever you approach in this, in, this, uh, in, this par- in this parable, when I said to you, which one do you identify with? Right? The problem is they're both sinners. They're both condemned. Because God holds us accountable, not just for our outward religious acts or lack of them. He holds us accountable for our inner thought life as well. We all deserve the deaths of hell. You may not have committed adultery in action. Or murder is another one that Jesus identifies. If we hate someone in our heart, we are guilty of murder. And what Jesus is trying to convey in the, in the course of his teaching is that we all deserve the wrath of God. And that puts us all in the same situation as we come to church here this morning. We need to know what makes us acceptable before God. And this brings us to our second point this morning. We've seen that there are two sinners here, the Pharisee and the publican. But there is one righteousness. And it is not the Pharisee's righteousness or the publican's righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's an alien righteousness. Now, as we look at one righteousness, many of you may be thinking to yourself, well, moral righteousness doesn't mean that much. We've seen the erosion of it in our culture. Can you imagine, can you actually think of a modern TV show where the couple waits until they're married to have a sexual relationship? Can you think of one in the last even 10 or 15 years? Even one. Morals are flexible in our postmodern society where everyone judges by their own standard. But we can't deny our nature. We want to be accepted. We want to be validated. We want to be right. 
whether we're walking on the right side of the street or the left side of the street. We want to be right. And there's a sense of validation that's greatly powerful. We think about those moments in our lives. I remember when I got my university acceptance letter. The first time I got into university. It was very satisfying. I wanted to tell everybody about it. Even though it was my third choice, I was very happy about it. This was a milestone. I had made it in. I was good enough, right? Or was I? My first semester in university, I saw my top marks in high school drop down to average. I began to wonder if I was good enough. And many of us go through life this way. We have our empty cups looking for validation. We look for validation from our spouse or from our relationship. And if we don't have that, we look for validation maybe from our work or from our children. We want them to, to say, oh, Father, you are an amazing dad to us. We don't like it when our children say, Dad, you didn't pay attention to me. Dad, you were so self-preoccupied with your work that you didn't care for me. Oh, we want to say, Dad, you were just amazing. You did all of those things. And so we pursue those things. And we try and make uh, the lives of our children so special so that they will validate us and take care of us, perhaps, when we're older. Right? We look for validation. We look for support. We're always trying to live up to the standards. We do it in different ways. For myself, before becoming a pastor, I was a project manager. I uh, advanced quickly through the ranks, but I did this because I was so concerned with what my boss and my supervisors thought of me. The greatest thing for them is, for, for me to hear was for them to come into my performance room and say, Chris, you did an amazing job. Oh, I felt so good. And I wanted to do more. Yeah, put on more on my plate. Sure, I can do it. Right? I felt good. Then I got into a situation where I had too much and I had to choose between my marriage and my job. And the Lord really humbled me in that moment. And I saw that I wasn't looking for my acceptance before him. I was looking at it and I was giving too much of my acceptance to other men. And he humbled me and he challenged me and he changed me. We all measure ourselves by some standard of what we construct or what others erect for us. Right? We grew up in a family and we think, oh, I'm not as good as him as my siblings. But is it ever enough? The Bible understands this need, this mentality, this human need for acceptance, this human need for validation. And the reason for that is because that's the way God has created us to be. We were created not to be independent, but to be in a dependent relationship on Him. That's the way it was in the Garden of Eden. We walked and talked in relationship with God. But when sin entered the picture, that relationship was broken. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And all mankind fell into sin. And so we're all broken by the fall. Back in the garden, we had God's absolute approval. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They didn't need anyone else or anything else. But when we sinned, we lost God's absolute approval. And so, we tried to fill it up with other ways. We developed a hunger for self-glory, for self-assurance, for self-approval. And we started worshiping created things, even good things like family and work and relaxation, whining, right? All of those things, they're not bad in themselves. But they're bad when they change our relationship with God, when God becomes second to those things. When we elevate being with family rather than being with the family of God and worship. When we elevate work to the point where we are not doing what we are responsible to do in our homes. Or even to come to church on Sundays because we've got work. I realize it's a struggle. Some of you are in medical school. You have studies. I can't imagine. I just went to arts graduate school. It's not the same, I know. It's hard. It's hard to set aside the Lord's day, to worship Him. Not just the Lord's hour, but the Lord's day. We wrestle with these things. 
And we look and we see all these things that promise us satisfaction if we only do these things. But we will never find the validation we want in our families or in our job or in our work or even in our lining, even in our leisure. The Bible teaches us that there's a deep hunger for validation and relationship. A hunger that's only satisfied with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. With our maker and our redeemer. Jesus illustrates this when he speaks to the Samaritan woman very well in John 4. Interestingly, the Samaritan woman had sought to validate herself through relationships. She had had five husbands. But she was not satisfied. And Jesus says to this woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And this is why the Pharisee's prayer is insufficient. This is why the Pharisee goes away unsatisfied. Because he isn't seeking God's approval. He doesn't even know that he needs it. He thinks he's above mercy. Well, what? how do we know that? Well, look closely at his prayer. What does he say? Let me read it to you again. <clears throat> God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What is it it that is repeated? Five times. I, 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 I. Even though he begins by addressing God, he spent the rest of the prayer talking about himself. I think that's instructive. He even separates himself from the others. He says, I'm not like this. Tax collector. Verse 11. He even physically distanced himself. He's like, okay, that tax collector, he can stay on that side of the, the church. I'm going to be over here where the sanctified people sit and stand. He stands by himself. He doesn't even think he's a sinner like the tax collector. Surely he's in a different class than him. And let's be honest. Some of us think this way too, don't we? You think, oh no, I'm not as bad as that person. Did you hear what they did? Did you hear how blind they are? I remember being told as a child that when you point at something, someone, you've got to remember that there are three fingers that are pointing back at you. For every finger you point, three are accusing yourself. We're just blind to it. Right? Some of you are looking at your hands and going, oh yeah, that's right. right? This Pharisee was also blind to it as well. Because he was relying on his self-righteousness to save him. And he didn't realize that his self-righteousness was actually condemning him to hell. He felt good in his worship. But he went home unjustified. And if he didn't repent, he went home and ultimately went to hell. You can go to church and go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying here. Think about that. But look a little bit more closely. If we look at verse 11 in more detail, we translate it more directly, more literally, like the New American Standard does, it would be the Pharisee standing prayed about himself. Or even, you can, uh, you can interpret the Greek, to himself. Which suggests that as he prays, he's not even praying to God directly himself, he's praying to himself. I, 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 I'm so good. It's a religion of self-righteousness. Our prayer reveals a lot about us. Right, we can read the Bible, but prayer is how we process what we've meditated, what we've intaked from the Bible. And how we respond to it and how we pray reflects what's actually going on in our hearts. In the Pharisee, prayer was just a way to congratulate himself on being a good guy compared to others. 
Religion can be deceptive. In prayer, we can be actually not worshipping the God that we profess to be worshipping. We can be worshipping ourselves. And what the, the Pharisee did here is not real prayer. Real prayer is coming into the presence of a holy God. And you can't come into the presence of God and not grasp something of the deficit that exists between you and God. And the effectiveness of our prayer depends on how we present ourselves before the throne of grace. The Pharisee evaluated himself in terms of the conduct of other men. And that's the problem. He failed to acknowledge the painful guilt of his own sin or to ask God to forgive him. He wasn't relying on the work of God to save him from his lostness. He didn't even think he was lost. He didn't think he needed grace. He was too proud to admit that he was a sinner. As Spurgeon put it so well, the Pharisee was too good to be saved. And that's instructive, isn't it? Jesus said, I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. To be saved by Jesus Christ, the one thing you need to know is that you're a sinner. Now, this is not just a problem for the Pharisee. This is a problem for ourselves, too, isn't it? Because we're too often wanting to compare ourselves to others and congratulate others for being more spiritual than someone else. We're often very impressed with ourselves. We don't necessarily express this openly, but we're often impressed with how good we are compared to those around us. You can go all week. I went all week without having to confess any particular sin. Other people's sins seem so much worse than my own. And what's interesting is we can end up trying to earn favor with God by comparing ourselves to others. And we fall into the same trap that Jesus describes in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they're righteous and treated others with contempt. I go back to my original question about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy here. It's a bit of a double jeopardy question, isn't it? Because many of us are thinking, well, I'm not the Pharisee. Nope. Wait. Are you have contempt for the Pharisee? You're a sinner. Right? That's the point that Jesus is trying to convey to you. Everyone who comes into worship is a sinner. Everyone is in a deficit before God. Everyone needs Jesus Christ. It's not church clothes that prepare you for church. It's tie means nothing. God cares about the heart. And the Bible says very clearly in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that a heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The Pharisee was entirely unaware of his situation. He thought that worship was just externals. It was proven by looking at his checkbook. And look how much money I give. I give a hundred times more than what's required. But that's not enough. That's not enough. He had an outside-in approach. If I just do good things on the outside, the rest will take care of itself. And so many of us live like that. But God's not just interested in external form. He wants to know the internal motivation. He's not interested in your outward acts so much as he's interested in what motivates them. He looks at the heart. One of the illustrations that I use to illustrate this is when we think of just basic good deeds. Right? As a boy, I was taught by my parents that if you see an old lady at a street corner, a busy street one of your responsibilities is to help her, right? Help an old lady across the street, right? If you're a little boy, that's what I would do. I'd go, and if I saw someone there who needed help, I would make sure that I would help them across the street. But God's not just interested in that outward act. He's interested in why you're doing it. 
And there could be lots of ulterior motives for you to help that person across the street. Maybe that lady is standing there, that old lady, and she's well-dressed, and she has a little Gucci bag. Yeah. Oh, if I help this lady across the street, maybe she'll give me some pocket money. Right? Or maybe you're there, and you see Jonathan from the church on the other side of the street, and you think, oh, Jonathan sees me, Carrie, he'll have a better impression. How righteous a pastor am I? If I'm walking her across the street, my members see that. Oh, that's awesome. I'll, I'll be for, for sure to do it. And I'll make sure that I wave to Jonathan so that he sees me do it. Or maybe I feel like I'm in moral deficit. I've been rude to someone earlier. I've been selfish. I know, and it's bothering me. So if I just help this old lady across the street, I'll be able to quieten my conscience. We do that sometimes, don't we? We make up for other sins. We try and be self-righteous. Or maybe you just want that little old lady to be grateful to you, to make her feel like she's in your debt. Oh, yeah, you know what? I'm such an, on, an awesome person. I, I, I understand. You just want to thank me. and I, I, I get it. I'm a good guy. Thanks. I appreciate it. Glad somebody finally acknowledges it. Or I just want to feel good about myself. Yeah, you know what I did tonight, honey? I, I, I saw this old lady, and she was just so pathetic. And I just helped her across the street. You married, like, the most awesome guy in the whole wide world, right? Yeah, right? But God's not interested in that at all. God sees right through that. That's not righteousness. That's hypocrisy. That's self-righteousness. God's not interested in your money. He's interested in your heart. As a church, we don't want your money. We don't encourage those who aren't believers to give to the church. Why? Because we believe it is an act of worship done privately between you and God, where you express your dependence on Him by giving joyfully and sacrificially without the right hand knowing the left what's doing. We do religious acts not for credit or merit. We do it out of gratefulness, out of obedience to God. The Pharisee is all about external form. He shows no sign of a God-fearing internal motivation. And he was exactly like the people listening to Jesus' story, confident of his own righteousness, judged by his own standard. Are you in that situation this morning? Consider it. On the other hand, there is a different prayer that brings grace and salvation. It brings justification and acceptance before God. Whereas the Pharisee was counting on his good works, the tax collector was begging for mercy. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice the difference. First, the tax collector begins with God. Because prayer is coming before a holy God. And the tax collector acknowledged the huge deficit between him and God. He didn't say, well, I only cheated a little bit. Or, you know what, I may have cheated, but I gave a lot more. Or I gave, look at all the money I just put in the temple, temple box. No, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He does not come in self-righteousness. And he comes to God not as an equal, right? The Pharisee's off there, you know, saying, oh, you know, God, such a good person, all of these things. It's almost like he's on the same level as God. He's totally justified in approaching him. Instead, over here, the Pharisee, or sorry, the, the tax collector, beating his chest. He won't even look to heaven. He beats his breast in distress. And notice how he prays. He doesn't pull any punches here. He says, God, to be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, if you're looking in your Bibles, in the ESV, it's translated incorrectly. It is actually the definite article, the, not the indefinite article, of. You're saying, Pastor Chris, I know you taught English. 
are you just trying to give us an English lesson? No, I'm trying to say that this is conveying a very important theological point. The tax collector himself here sees himself not just as another sinner in a sin sea of sinners. No, he sees himself as the sinner. And that's correct. It reminds you of the Apostle Paul, where he says, the Apostle Paul, by the way, who wrote most of the New Testament. This is what he said about himself. This is how he comes before God. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Or as one translation puts it, I am the worst. Or the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul. The chief. The worst. He knew that when he came into the presence of God, he was unrighteous in himself. Do you approach God this way? Do you know how bad you really are? Even as a Reformed Baptist? Maybe even especially as a Reformed Baptist? How much you need the mercy of God? Do you believe that you are pervasively depraved outside of Him? Tax collector understood who he was before God. He understood he, had, he deserved divine wrath. And this caused him to seek a salvation that only God could give. And a salvation that only could come by grace. When we talk about the wrath of God, it's not a violent emotion. As one writer has put it, it is God's steady, unrelenting, uncompromising opposition to every evil and sinful thing. That's the wrath of God. Unrelenting uncompromising opposition to every evil. And that challenges our own perception of ourselves. Of course, we shouldn't be despairing when we confront our own sin, if we know the gospel. In fact, coming to a realization of the depths of our sin is necessary. Only when we come to a depth of our sin will we cry out to God for salvation. Until then, God is either irrelevant to our lives or horribly unfair in our eyes. This is what Martin Luther struggled with as a Roman Catholic. He felt that God made it impossible to be righteous. He thought that God was horribly unfair. That there was no one good enough. He had tried every which way himself. He climbed the stairs of the Scala Sancta, kissed it, and he looked back at the top and said, does this even matter? He had tried every which way. He spent hours in confessional, and then he'd come out of the confessional and he realized he'd forgotten something to go back. And it was just never enough. It was never enough. And he concluded that nobody, nobody could be good enough before God, no matter what they did. And in that, he was right in our own strength, in our own works, in our own religiosity. We cannot please God. But then, he discovered that wonderful text in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am, the Apostle Paul says, not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now what does that mean? The righteous shall live by faith. Luther really thought about that. He began to understand that what Paul was talking about here was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available passively. It was not a grace that was accomplished by actively pursuing it, achieving it actively. And there was confusion in his understanding of what it meant to be justified. The Latin word for justification, justificare, is based on the Roman judicial system. Justice, justus, justice, ficare, make, make just. And so the Roman Catholics taught that God makes unrighteous people righteous through the sacraments of the church. But Luther was looking now at the Greek. He was going back to the sources. 
And the original Greek word is diakasone, which doesn't mean make righteous, but means to regard, regard or to count, or de to declare righteous. And that's where the light bulb went off. And Luther realized that Paul wasn't talking here about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by grace to the people who don't have a righteousness of their own. A righteousness that is revealed from faith for faith. And it was a transformative. This means that as sinners, we can receive passively an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. And Luther realized that we're saved by a righteousness that's not from our own efforts, not from our own religiosity, not from our church attendance, not from the way that we dress, not from the way that we act, not from the way we spend our money. It's entirely of God, and it's a righteousness from Christ. And Luther said that when he understood this, he said, it, he put it this way, when I discovered that, I was born again by the Holy Ghost, and the doors of heaven swung open, and I walked through. He understood that he was justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, provided by Jesus Christ. And that's the picture of the publican here. He is definitely a sinner. But he also definitely understands that justification comes by faith in the promises of salvation in the scriptures. The tax collector judged himself by God's law. He was a sinner. And there's no way to that conclusion other than by looking into the mirror that God demands. Now, it's not easy to do this, is it? To see your sin for what it is. It's not the most flattering way of looking at yourself. But it is the only and the most liberating way to do it. Comparing yourself to other men is inconclusive, and it will lead towards self-congratulation. It alienates ourselves from each other, both in our self-congratulation, but also as we leave church in defeat, despondent. We leave empty-handed. But here, notice, the tax collector does not leave empty-handed. Notice what he asked for. God, be merciful. Palaskumai. Palaskumai. Again, the word is important. What does it mean? It means, literally, he said, God, turn away your wrath. Have mercy. It's not even really a good translation. A more direct translation would be, God, atone for me. What he was asking for was nothing less than to be saved. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, Jesus, by dying on the cross, turns away the wrath of God. And his active obedience to God and throughout his whole life is, if we put our faith and trust in him, imputed to us, it is given to us, his righteousness becomes ours. And our sin is put on him. On the cross. In other words, the tax collector, when he says, God be merciful to me, God atone for me, he's asking God to send a scapegoat. This is part of the Old Testament. We know what a scapegoat is, right? A scapegoat is someone we blame so that we avoid the punishment. But literally, a scapegoat is described in Leviticus 16. And they would literally put a, a goat and they would throw it outside of the camp and they would, they, would, they would sacrifice. It was designed to take away Israel's guilt and sin. The publican, the tax collector, wanted expiation. He wanted covering of sin. He wanted propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath. That's what he said in that simple prayer. God, be merciful to me. Now, he may not have known those terms, expiation and propitiation, but the Bible explains them to us. Hebrews puts it this way. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
He was worshiping God the only way he knew how, in the Old Covenant, the mercy seat, the blood of sacrifice that would be spilt on the mercy seat of the altar. This is what he was calling for, an atoning sacrifice. God atoned for me. It's his only hope. And friends, it is your only hope this morning. Have you received an atoning sacrifice for your sins? Has your guilt been covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ? The urgency of this is communicated by the end of the parable. Both men go home. Just like every one of us here will do after the service this afternoon. They, like us, had offered prayers. That they were offered very differently in terms of it. Technically, they had both worshipped. The problem is, one worshipped God, and the other didn't. One came before God, desperate, and in need of Him. The other didn't feel that he really needed God at all. Which are you, this morning? Again, it wasn't the prim and proper one who was saved. It was the one who was the wreck. He knew his need. And in the end, it was the wreck that was justified. Not by his works, not by his goodness, but by grace. Through the power of Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. It's, it, it's like Romans 4 verse 5, that Jesus came to justify the ungodly. Jesus decides who is righteous. Not your feelings. Not your achievements. You see, I bet that the Pharisee went home thinking pretty good about himself. He had worshipped himself. He had appeared to worship God. He went away feeling good. Right? And sometimes we judge, you know, how we feel by how effective church. Oh, I felt really uplifted today in church. And church ought to, in some ways, uplift you. But sometimes, at least sometimes, it should discourage you. It should make you clear about your sinful situation. We don't come here to sit and consume stuff and be unaffected by it. We need to be confronted by our sins so that we grow in our repentance. We need to be confronted with our inner Pharisee. And it's only when we're confronted with the depths of our sin that God gives us a heart of repentance. And sometimes he does that in the strangest of ways. Sometimes he does it by introducing hardship into your life. Sickness. Family conflict. All kinds of things that reveal our own self-righteousness. And what we were determining was what made us good. And God confronts us and, and makes us realize, even as we respond to those hardships in our lives, we start to see what we really were focusing on, what we really were worshiping. Jesus decides who is righteous. Not our feelings or our achievements. To be justified by God's grace is to be counted righteous. To get the approval we all crave, but no one deserves. The Bible's really clear about that. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 3. Justification in the Bible is God's legal declaration that we've been made right with God. We've been declared, we've been considered Righteous by God. Our sins are paid for. We're acquitted of sin and the charges against us. And this Pharisee was not justified. That's the shocker for Jesus' listeners. Because the Pharisee declared his own righteousness. He didn't want or even request God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is only available to us as a gift. Romans 5 calls it the free gift of God's righteousness. Sinners can't be saved by what sinners do. The Bible says that they are dead in their transgressions and sins. But anyone can be saved. Anyone and everyone can be saved by expressing faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Romans 3, 25 puts it, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That's the glory of the gospel. We are saved by grace. We are saved by Jesus and his work on the cross. Each one of us this morning stands condemned before God for our sins. We're all sinners as we come together. There's no difference. All have sinned, all have false motives, and all of us face God's holy wrath for our idolatry. And the only way that we can find acceptance, the only way that we can find peace is in Christ. We can't find it in ourselves. George Whitfield said this in one of his sermons on Jeremiah. He said, before you can speak peace in your heart, you must not only be made sick of your sin, but you may be, must be made sick of your righteousness. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of our heart. The pride of our heart will not let us submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Is your pride, what is it that's preventing you this morning? From coming before God and saying, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. What is it that you're relying on to justify yourself before God this morning? Are you relying on a just, are you justifying yourself on a comparison with others? I'm a Reformed Baptist, so all those crazy whoever's out here, all these other different denominations, those Roman Catholics. Or I'm better than that person in the pew. I can clearly tell that that person didn't live a good life this week. Or are you this morning taking refuge in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Can you sing of that? I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Can you sing that? Let's do that. Amen.